section thirteen of the crusades by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter seven the third crusade part one a halo of false glory surrounds the third crusade from the associations which connect it with the lion-hearted king of england the exploits of richard i have stirred to enthusiasm the dullest of chroniclers have furnished themes for jubilant eulogies and have shed over his life that glamour which cheats even sober-minded men as they read the story of his prototype achilles in the tale of troy they have done even more for if we may believe the narrative they excited the same vehement admiration in his most redoubtable enemy and the romance of youth or even of maturer age fastens on the picture which exhibits the brother of saladin in the thick of mortal fight as sending to him two arabian chargers by way of lauding the hero for dealing wounds and death on a multitude of his people when we turn from the picture to the reality we shall see in this third crusade an enterprise in which the fiery zeal which does something towards redeeming the savage brutalities of godfrey and the first crusaders is displaced by base and sordid greed by intrigues utterly of the earth earthy by wanton crimes from which we might well suppose that the sun would hide away its face and in the leaders of this enterprise we shall see men in whom morally there is scarcely a single quality to relieve the monotonous blackness of their infamy in whom strategically a very little generalship comes to the aid of a blind brute force and in some of whom personally an animal courage or ferocity which fears no danger and knows no fatigue surmounts a thousand difficulties and charms the vast multitudes who find their highest delight in the worship or idolatry of mere power as a military leader richard i of england is beneath contempt when compared with the first napoleon but he may fairly compete with him as a criminal alaric the goth and attila the hun never profess to be sovereigns of a civilized people but in no sense have they a better title to be regarded as scourges of mankind undertakings which depend on the temper and resources of individual men are not likely to be carried out with unswerving persistence and this ebb and flow of purpose and energy is especially manifest in the history of the crusades with any marked success comes a feeling of self-complacency in the thought that a vow has been strictly fulfilled or a duty thoroughly discharged and the result is either slackness or total indifference to matters which thus far seemed in their importance to leave everything else in the shade assuredly there was little indeed in the lives of the later latin kings of jerusalem to keep alive the enthusiasm which had been roused by the preaching of the hermit peter and for the time a change seems to pass over the spirit of the dream which for nearly a hundred years had been beguiling western christendom the impulse it can scarcely be dignified with the name of policy which led almeric to fix his thoughts on the conquest of egypt is the nearest approach to the temper of the true statesman and general exhibited in the history of the latin kingdom of jerusalem it aimed not only at preventing a combination of hostile powers to the north and south fraught with fatal dangers for any dominion which might lie between them 
but it seemed to promise the possession of a country of immense importance to the merchant and trader. This advantage was clearly seen, and eagerly aimed at, at the Third Lateran Council in 1179, which insisted that the conquest of Damietta should be the first object of every crusade, the maintenance of the kingdom of Jerusalem at best only the second. In short, these expeditions had in strictness of speech ceased to be crusades, unless an exception is to be made in the case of the sainted Louis the Ninth of France. With him, as with Godfrey and the first crusaders, the religious motive absorbed every other. In the rest, the professed object of the scheme is made an excuse for roving forays or political conquests, or is feebly carried out as an irksome or even repulsive task, while the harmony indispensable for success is sacrificed for quarrels and deadly feuds which would do credit to the society of savages. But until the cross had been thrust aside for the crescent on the Mosque of Omar, the task of stirring up the western princes for another crusade was neither easy nor successful. The crusading spirit was never strong in Henry II of England, and even after the quarrel with Becket had come to an end with his death, he had a convenient excuse for staying at home in the dangers which menaced his dominions from the north. But with the captivity of his enemy William in 1174 this pretext vanished. The Scottish king swore to hold his kingdom as a fief of the English crown, and Henry, unable any longer to resist the arguments or entreaties of the French king Louis the Seventh in 1177, promised to combine his forces as Duke of Normandy with those of his liege lord for the succour of the Christians in the Holy Land. The death of Louis in 1180, which cut short this design, brought no bitter disappointment to Henry. But when some five years later, in 1185, Heraclius, Patriarch of Jerusalem, kneeling before him with the Count of Tripoli and the Grand Master of the Hospitallers, placed in his hands the scepter of his kinsman, Folk of Anjou, and of the kings who had succeeded him, with the keys of the holy city and the holy sepulchre. The English monarch was careful to address them in words which conveyed encouragement while they committed him to nothing. He would ask the advice of his counsel, and his question was so put as to show clearly what he would wish the answer to be. He desired to know whether his duty called him to govern and guard his subjects at home, or to break lances with Saracens to prop up the tottering sway of a distant sovereign. There was no doubt in the mind of his barons and prelates that the nearer work had a paramount call on him, and the promise of Henry to contribute fifty thousand marks for the needs of the Latin kingdom in Palestine was received by the patriarch with a dissatisfaction which manifestly excited the king's anger. Not a whit abashed, Heraclius bade him deal with himself as he had dealt with the martyr Thomas of Canterbury, and expressed himself as not less ready to die by his hands than by those of the less cruel Saracens. This ridiculous taunt was allowed to pass without rebuke, and Heraclius departed unhurt after consecrating the church of the Knights Templars in the city of London. But the fall of Jerusalem in 1187 cast a new color over questions of policy and duty. A few days after that event, and in all likelihood before he could have heard of it, 
Pope Urban III died at Verona, oppressed with grief not for a disaster of which he was ignorant, but for the death struggle which seemed imminent between the papal and the imperial power. His successor, Gregory VIII, whose short pontificate was ended in less than two months, bewailed the event as a catastrophe affecting the whole of Christendom. But he was probably not unconscious that for the papacy it might create a diversion which might rescue it from dire peril, if not destruction. The few days of his life which remained to him were spent in writing letters to reawaken the spirit which had been roused successively by the hermit Peter and the sainted Bernard. The divine wrath was to be appeased by a fast of five years, and the consciousness of shameless corruption and venality inspired the cardinals to promise that they would take no more bribes for the furtherance or perversion of justice, and that they would never mount again on horseback until the land once trodden by the Saviour should have ceased to be polluted by the feet of the unbeliever. Pope Gregory died on a journey undertaken for the purpose of making peace between the republics of Genoa and Pisa, whose fleets were of the first importance for the carrying out of the scheme which he had at heart. A few weeks later, the broad plain between Gisors and Tri witnessed the meeting of Henry of England and Philip Augustus, the young French king, to hear the cause of the Christians in Palestine pleaded by William, Archbishop of Tyre, the historian of the first and second crusades the two sovereigns assumed the cross and their example was followed by the count of champagne the count of flanders and a crowd of barons and knights it was agreed that the english cross should be white and the flemish green the french retaining the red henry hastened to england and obtained from a council held at geddington in northamptonshire the imposition of a tax called the saladin tithe every one who refused to join the crusade was to pay a tenth of all his goods movable or immovable the sum thus raised was seventy thousand pounds but it is astonishing to learn that a sum almost as large sixty thousand pounds was extorted from the scanty company of jews settled in england whether the burden pressed heavily upon them we cannot tell worse things were in store for them before many months should pass away it is possible that Henry may now have really intended to fulfil a promise with which thus far he had only dallied. He sent messengers to the Hungarian King Bela and Isaac Angelus, the Eastern Emperor, to request a safe transit and free market for his followers. The demand was granted, but Henry now had other concerns to occupy him. The wretched quarrels which were the inevitable consequence of petty principalities and the complicated tenures of feudalism had assumed their most hateful form among the princes of the house of anjou of the legitimate sons of henry the second henry richard and john it is hard to say which led the most disgraceful life and earned the most shameful reputation the tyranny of richard in aquitaine aquitaine was monstrous even in an age notorious for its cruelty and its treachery but it was probably no disinterested sympathy for his victims which brought against him the forces of his elder brother henry and his half-brother geoffrey the son of that rosamond clifford into whose history the popular talk of that or of a later day introduced a tale common to the folklore of many lands 
the strife was for the time appeased by their father against whom these dutiful children now turned their arms in 1183. The day fixed for the battle was drawing nigh. When the young prince, or King Henry, he had been crowned in 1169 by the bishops excommunicated by Thomas of Canterbury shortly before his martyrdom, was cut off by a sudden attack of fever, and Richard, as the eldest surviving son, looked on himself as heir to the crown of England but it soon became plain that the affections of his father were fixed on his younger son john one of the most despicable of cowards and the most contemptible of traitors the discovery led richard to renew his intimacy with the french king philip augustus to whose sister adelais or alex he had long since been betrothed that princess had passed into the custody of the english king and had it was said borne him a child but of this Richard for the present took no count, as backed by Philip Augustus he insisted on her surrender and on receiving the fealty of the barons as his father's heir apparent. On this second point the king's answer was ambiguous, and Richard, exclaiming indignantly that he now believed what before he had thought impossible, knelt down at the feet of Philip, and demanding from him protection in his just rights, did homage to him for all his father's dominions in france in the war which followed henry was driven from the castles of mont amboise and tours his body was wasted with disease and he was induced to meet his son and the french king on a plain near tours a thunderstorm in which the lightning twice fell near them unnerved him still more he agreed to pay twenty thousand marks to philip to surrender adelais and to allow his vassals to swear fealty to Richard, and asked only to see the list of the names of barons who had joined the confederacy of the French king. At the head was the name of his own son John. He read no further. A raging fever came on during which he heaped curses on his unnatural children, and in a week he died, July 1189. Richard was now king of England, but he was not the man to fix his thoughts on the wilder schemes which had filled the mind of his father. The power and wealth of his kingdom were things to be used for spreading his own renown, and this renown could be won and extended nowhere so well as in the Holy Land, and in no other way so gloriously, as in cleaving the bodies of unbelievers with his deadly broadsword. It was the ambition of a ruffian, gilded over with a thin varnish borrowed from the chivalry of Tancred, and he proceeded to gratify it at the expense of the real interests, whether of the kingdom or of himself. The sum which he needed for his enterprise far exceeded the one hundred thousand marks which his father's greed or economy had amassed in the treasury at Salisbury. Richard sold the earldom of Northumberland for a thousand pounds to the Bishop of Durham for the term of his life. For three thousand pounds he received into favour his brother Geoffrey, now Archbishop of York. For ten thousand pounds he resigned to William, the Scottish king, all the rights over Scotland, which the latter had conceded to Henry, together with the castles of Roxburgh and Berwick, and then departed for Normandy on the same errand of plunder and exaction. Both the First and Second Crusade had been marked at their outset by persecutions and massacres of the Jews, the third was to furnish no exception. 
the jews of england felt probably that a storm was gathering and they hastened to conciliate the king with costly presents their eagerness unhappily outran their discretion richard knowing the feeling of the people had ordered that no jews should appear before him on the coronation day disregarding this command some of them mingling with the crowd entered the palace were thrust out by the mob and murdered the fire thus kindled spread furiously every jew in the streets was cut down every house belonging to a jew was plundered and burnt some attempt was made to check the slaughter three men were hanged but they were charged not with murdering jews but with robbing christians under pretense that they were jews or with setting houses on fire to the danger or hurt of the property of christians the iniquity was not confined to london the same things were done in all the great cities at york as at lincoln the wealthy jews hurried with their goods into the castle at lincoln they found safety at york they unhappily interpreted the departure of the governor from the castle as a sign that he was plotting against them with the christians of the town and closed the gates against him on his return in his anger he induced the sheriff of the county to order his armed bands to the assault and these were joined by the populace whose fury showed at once that they meant much more than the mere recovery of the castle the besieged could hear the fierce cry of a cannon regular of the premonstratensian order who hounded on the mob to destroy the enemies of christ they knew that their doom was sealed but if they must die they might still choose the mode of their death in a council summoned to debate the matter the rabbi urged that they should avoid frightful insults and barbarous torments for their wives and children as well as for themselves by voluntarily rendering up their souls to the creator and falling by their own hands the deed he urged was both reasonable and sanctioned by their law as well as made famous by the men who in the deadly struggle between jerusalem and rome had slain themselves at masada to some his counsel seemed wise to others a hard saying the rabbi cut the discussion short by bidding all to depart in peace who could not approve his counsel a few only left the chamber in a few hours the work of death was done and the castle was left in flames the few who could not summon courage to follow the example of their brethren offered from the walls to open the gates and submit to baptism if their lives should be spared the terms were granted and the surrender was made and by way of keeping faith the christians rushing in slaughtered every living thing within the walls these were venial offences but the men of york added to them an act which was a real crime and one of the deepest dye in the eyes of king richard they hastened to the cathedral and seizing on all the bonds and obligations which had been laid up in the archives burnt them in the nave these bonds on the death of those who held them would all have escheated to the king and the bishop of ely the chancellor was commissioned to search out and punish the offenders but the ringleaders had made their escape across the scottish border and justice even in the matter of robbery was baffled richard having filled his coffers so far as he could met philip augustus at vesley where forty-four years before the pleadings of st bernard had seemed to stir the heart of christendom to efforts which must be successful 
the voice which now had the most power was not that of the priest the hermit or the saint it was that of the troubadour and if for the present his harp might be attuned to lofty measures and his words might convey lessons almost as austere as those of pope urban the second there was at least the danger that a very moderate measure of success might lead the minstrel to arouse emotions of a less devout sort and tempt his hearers to less exalted delights than those of prayer and meditation the forces of the two kings united amounted it is said to one hundred thousand men the discipline which kept them together may be pictured from the rules which enacted that murderers should be tied to the bodies of their victims and hurled into the sea that they who drew their swords in anger should lose their hands and that thieves should be tarred and feathered and in that plight put on shore while philip and richard were on their way to sicily frederick i emperor of the west commonly known as barbarossa or redbeard was on his way to constantinople he had fought a long battle with the pope or the man who called himself pope he had himself set up an anti-pope as the imperialist popes were called and with the sanction of this anti-pope who styled himself pascal the third he had attacked rome beaten down the gates of st peter's with hatchets and axes and seen his troops advance filling the church with blood as they fought their way to the high altar in the midst of this carnage pascal the third had placed the crown on the head of the empress beatrice and had blessed again the diadem of frederick he had had to contend with a mightier enemy than the pope in the fearful pestilence which broke out within his camp and his flight from rome had ensured the victory of pope alexander the third the somewhat hesitating friend of thomas of canterbury but although the warfare of previous years was succeeded by an apparent peace frederick lost no opportunity of strengthening himself against the papacy and in the days of urban the third he had gained much by securing for his son henry the hand of constantia heiress of the kingdom of sicily the old strife might have been renewed but the heart of barbarossa was stirred by the tidings from the holy land or the letters of gregory the eighth and his armies advanced under his standard through hungary toward the capital of the eastern empire that capital barbarossa like his predecessor conrad refused to enter the byzantine caesar had with scant courtesy allowed him the privilege of buying food for his men he had studiously withheld from him the titles which implied a divided empire the steadier discipline the more decent order which marked the army of barbarossa seemed to promise a better result to his enterprise they had defeated the turks in a general battle and had taken the seljukian capital of iconium but a great disaster nothing less than the loss of their leader himself awaited them in eleven ninety frederick was drowned in a pisidian river as some said while he was crossing it as others had it from the effects of bathing the misery and suffering which had fallen to the lot of the earlier crusaders now weighed heavily upon them and the wretched story is sufficiently told if it be true that not a tenth of the number which crossed the bosphorus lived to enter antioch the few who made their way thus far found a city almost deserted by the turkish soldiers and antioch once more had a christian government End of section thirteen